Our scripture reading this morning is in uh, John chapter 4. We're looking at the story of a woman who met Jesus by a well. John chapter 4. John is one of the more well-known books of the Bible, so you'd think it'd be fairly easy to find your spot. But it can get a little bit tricky because John wrote five books of the Bible, a gospel called John, three letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then a book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ to John, the book of Revelation. To show you how this could be maybe a little bit trickier than you might think, I was at a wedding where I was asked to read a psalm, and a 13-year-old boy was asked to read a passage from the New Testament. He was asked to read 1 John, 1 John 4, 16 to 19. It's a great passage to read at a wedding. It says things like, we know that we love God because he first loved us. God is love. He that dwelleth in God dwells in love. It's perfect for a wedding. But nobody had rehearsed this 13-year-old boy. So, uh, and I was quite nervous. I was following him, and I wanted to see where he was going to stand. He stood in a pulpit, a raised pulpit, above the bride and groom, looking down on them. And he blessed them with these words, not from 1 John 4, but from John 4. Go and call thy husband, and come hither. <laughs> Sir, I have no husband. There you spoke well, for you have had five husbands. And the man you're now with is not your husband. Therein you spoke truly. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The bride looked at the groom and the groom at the bride and thought, can't do a thing about it now. Now, I had tried to be very gym clubbish about the thing. I had tried to memorize my psalm, and I was nervous. But I needn't be nervous because by the time I got up there... People were almost paying no attention to me. Their heads were bobbing like bobblehead dolls on the dashboard of your car. What just happened there? What was that all about? So it can go wrong. In this passage, we're going to see Jesus as the great evangelist presenting himself for the first time to a person and a woman at that and a Samaritan woman at that as the Christ. Not every Christian has the gift of evangelism. But every Christian can be an evangelist. Say that again, not everyone has the gift of evangelism, but everyone can be an evangelist. In fact, we are commanded, if we own Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are commanded to be evangelists. Mark 16 and 15 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Preach the gospel is actually a single word in the Greek, euangelion, from which we get evangelize, evangelist. Evangelize every creature. That's a command from the Lord Jesus himself to all of us. That verse gathers up every single person in this room. If you're a Christian, that gospel needs to be expressed by you. And if you're not a believer, that gospel needs to be expressed to you. In a few moments, we're going to read the story of a woman who had Christ 
as the best good news expressed to her, and within moments, within moments of accepting that news, she went out and it was expressed by her. She transitioned so quickly from being a mission field to being a missionary. John chapter 4 follows John chapter 3. It's pretty profound, eh? (laughs) You're thinking, boy, this guy's going to be deep. I say that because of the contrast between the two chapters. We know John chapter 3 so well. It contains the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But in John chapter 3, you have an orthodox, godly, male Jew. And the central character in chapter 4 is an ungodly, female, Samaritan, maybe the ungodliest woman in her town. So there's a big contrast, and yet Jesus doesn't say, I'll talk to the Nicodemuses, but I won't talk to a woman of such low repute as this. He talks to her for sure. How ironic it is that it's an ungodly Samaritan who becomes the evangelist for the godliest Jew of all time, the Lord Jesus. She is the first person to whom he reveals himself as the Christ. Long before Peter says his confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, before that, and even though she's not a male, not a Jew, and not a righteous person, she gets employed right away as an evangelist. She didn't go off to Bible school. She didn't wait to join a church. She just went and told whatever she knew. And you're going to find out in a moment what she said was very brief, and it was very imperfect, and yet God blessed it. It might seem to us ironic that this godly Jew, the Lord Jesus, would speak to this ungodly woman, but that's his pattern. I tracked down about 12 places in the New Testament where Jesus has a fairly extended conversation with people. And in those conversations, he meets about 21 different individuals. Of the 21, 17 are outcasts, misfits, outliers, intruders, social outcasts, 17 of them. There are some upright persons or people who have status in society like Nicodemus, an unnamed Pharisee, Jairus, even the rich young ruler. But most of them were outsiders. A centurion, a paralytic, and his friends who barged their way through the roof into a meeting. The Syrophoenician woman, blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a woman taken in adultery, a man born blind, and this Samaritan woman. That's who Jesus comes to. He comes to those who maybe more easily than the power brokers, see how desperately they need him. Let's start reading the passage. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. 
Now, if you look at the way Samaria is positioned, I tend to remember it this way. Go see Jesus immediately. Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Idumea. Go see Jesus immediately. So Galilee, Judea, Samaria is in between. The most direct route, if you had your planner, your GPS would take you right through Samaria on the biggest highway it could find. So you might say he had to go that way. But the Jews had ways around Samaria. They could avoid it if they wanted to. I think the must-needs was that he had an appointment with this woman. She had no appointment with him, and she was not expecting him. But when he came to that well, he knew who was going to show up, and he knew what that meeting would transpire. Verse 5 says, Then he comes to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. The Assyrians under Sargon took the Jews captive to Babylon in 722 BC. Then to repopulate that area, Ezarhaddon sent the pagans, the Babylonians, back into Samaria. They mixed with the Jews, and that mixture of people became the Samaritan race. They did not support the rebuilding of the temple and were not allowed to participate in that because they were, they were mixed. And so they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. It was dedicated to a Greek god, not to Jehovah. Yet they still, they were this mixture of Judaism and paganism. They felt that they were the only ones who had the true Bible. And that true Bible for them was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had the only legitimate copy. They used no other part of the Bible, just those five books. There are Samaritans still alive in the world today, maybe a couple hundred of them, and their numbers are diminishing all the time. They opposed Nehemiah when he tried to rebuild the walls. And so Samaritans were, were hated by the Jews, and yet Samaritans star in some unusual situations. Ten lepers get healed. Only one goes back to say thank you, and it's a Samaritan. A man is robbed and beaten and left by the side of the road, and two Jewish authorities, religious leaders, walk by him, but the man who helps and the man whose designation is now a rule of law in Ontario, the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan rule, he befriends the person, takes some of his own money, takes his own time, and befriends him as the Jews should have, showing you become a good neighbor not by what your neighbor's made of, but by how you treat that neighbor. Verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Notice he initiates the conversation. He doesn't wait for it to just fall into his lap, so to speak. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy meat. As we look at the Lord Jesus here, we can find as believers things he did that even though he was the son of God, even though he had greatness we will never have in of of ourselves, He used things that we can still use in this 21st century. And the first tip is this. He took an everyday conversation and used that as the starting point. 
just talking about getting water out of a well. We used to have a brother in our assembly. He's a long time now gone with the Lord, but uh, he would tell me about five or six ripe opportunities. He called them ripe opportunities he had to share the gospel when he went from his apartment down to the street, up to the newspaper stand, and back again. He'd get five opportunities. But as I listened to him explain them, I would see that he basically opened up each situation. They didn't just fall in his lap. He would say things like, as he got his paper, somebody would be standing there. This is terrible news, isn't it? Yes. Have you ever gotten any really good? What's the best news you ever got? And on he goes. And the next one, and the next one. An everyday situation provides a link because it shows we're on common ground. We're not, talk, we're not starting off in some high church terminology. We're just starting with the everyday, and that's what Jesus does. He used an everyday conversation. If you want to jot that down, these are tips we'll get along the way. Secondly, he stepped out of the box. He was a Jew talking to a Samaritan, a man talking to a woman, a godly man, talking to perhaps the ungodliest person in the whole neighborhood. But that step for the Lord Jesus was a small step. To make that cultural step across that divide from Jew to Samaritan, from male to woman, that was a small step because he'd already made a giant step from heaven to earth. He stepped way down to meet you and me. He stepped out of his box There may be some people that you find it easy to talk to about the gospel, and other people, not so much. You just don't take to them too well. Don't understand them all that much. Don't get along with them all that well. Well, maybe that's the very person that God wants you to put on your list, and before your Wednesday night meeting, as you begin to apply this passage and think about it for Wednesday night, when you meet again, think about talking to that person and stepping out of the box. What he did here would be like a Shiite, talking to a Sunni, a Palestinian to a Jew, a North Korean to a South Korean. Jesus crossed the divide. There's a book by Bill Hybels. It's simply called Walk Across the Room. And sometimes that's all it involves is just taking a stride across a room to talk to somebody deliberately and see where the conversation goes. Now, she tries to derail it three times. Here's the first sidetrack in verse 9. He's just asked for water, and she says, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So we see tip number three here. He has confronted her preconceived ideas. No Jew would ever talk to me because I'm a Samaritan. And if he knows anything about me, He won't talk to me because I don't have a good reputation and he seems to be a good man. He confronted her preconceived ideas. We have a a guy at gym club named Alan Virgin. And when almost any problem comes up and we have to counsel a boy because he's gotten angry or lazy or whatever it is, rather than just start directly with the anger, Alan will just say to him, tell me about Jesus. And it seems to be remote from... whatever the predicament was. But as they talk about Jesus, it'll show where his heart is, where his heart is aligned. And if there's a a misunderstanding of Jesus, that may be playing into his life and his inability to walk the Christian walk. So 
confront people's preconceived ideas. If they don't like Jesus, ask them why. Tell me, tell me what he's like in your estimation. And from there, you can correct, add to, subtract, and so on. He confronted her preconceived ideas, and he refused to be sidetracked. He refused to be sidetracked. That's tip number four. He refused to be sidetracked. When I was in the University of Toronto, I took a speed reading course and had the privilege of getting to know a guy named Charlie Bartha. And as we got to know each other, he became interested in the things of Christ. And over the course of taking that course, uh, he came to faith. And one day I asked him to come down to the corner of uh, Bloor and Spadina or thereabouts around the University of Toronto and give out tracks. So I gave him a bundle of tracks and said, you go that way, and I'll go this way. Maybe I should have gone with him, but he wanted to go on his own. So, And we'll meet up, so-and-so. And uh, we met back at the spot, and I had given out, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 tracks, I don't know. And I said, how many did you give out? And he said, uh, I gave out one. How come one? Well, I gave out one, and then we, we had to deal with evolution. I had to clear that up. And I had to show why God could still be good, even though there's sin in the universe. And he, he was trying to deal with all these other questions. And I, I said, you know, when those kind of questions come up, just tell the person, let's answer the question of the cross. Let's just answer that question. Jesus and his dying on the cross, his rising from the dead. Let's answer that question, and then these other questions we can address. And of course, you'd be addressing them potentially then with a person full of the Holy Spirit. Aubrey Delandria was a, an evangelist in the, mostly in the northern part of Ontario. And he was throwing one of those sidetrack questions like the woman gives Jesus here. And it was, where did Cain get his wife? You've heard that little, I'm not sure why that's such a stumper to people. But uh, he said, well, I don't know where Cain got his wife, but I know where I got my wife. I remember the night I proposed to her. It was under a tree. There's a lovely moon, a soft breeze, and I asked her to be my bride, and she agreed. And, you know, the Lord Jesus is seeking a bride for himself, too. And boom, off he goes from Cain and where he got his wife back to the cross. Back. Always bring it back to the Lord Jesus. So our, there's your first sidetrack. She's going to try it again in verse 12. Will she say, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's going to try it again in verse 20. When she says, what's the best place to worship? Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? So verse 10. Does Jesus take the bait and get sidetracked? Why are you having dealings? A Jew with a Samaritan? He says, if thou knewest the gift of God, doesn't even address the Samaritan Jew issue. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Then the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence hast thou that living water? And here's sidetrack number two. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank from it himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus has awakened her interest. There's tip number five. Give something that will provoke a question in a person's mind. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again, it stumped him. It raised questions. It mystified him. 
And he has deliberately said here, I can give you a water that will take away your thirst forever. And that piques her interest and that raises questions in her mind. But he doesn't go for the bait of getting off onto whether he's greater than Jacob or not. He just proceeds with her and living water and life and what he can offer her in himself, which is actually himself. I am the Christ that you're going to mention in just a minute. He awakened her interest. So think of the things that uh, your friends and your colleagues are interested in and use that as something to draw them out even further. Awaken their interest. Verse 13, Jesus said unto her, answered and said unto her, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Here's tip number six. Jesus moved from the physical to the spiritual, from the literal physical water that she could drink to a water that would feed her spirit and satisfy her thirst once and for all. All the water that we drink day by day, some of you have a bottle of water with you almost all through the day. You'll need it again tomorrow, and you'll need it again the next day. He was moving from something she knew, water in that well that she came to, to something she knew nothing about. So move from the familiar to the unfamiliar, from the physical to the spiritual. He explained the spiritual idea that he wanted her to grasp. Verse 15. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water. Give me this Perrier Ultra that you're talking about that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, at that point, I'd say, great, give it to her. She's ready, she's asking, but she's not ready. She's not ready. Jesus said unto her, go, call thy husband and come hither. Jesus went beyond what she wanted from Christ to what she needed to confront about herself. He moved from what she wanted from Christ, so I'll take a water, that's what you claim it to be, to what she needed to confront about herself, namely her past life and her sin. Thirst for anything in this life is really a thirst for God. Thirst for legitimate things like, like friendship and family, things for, that are less or more suspicious like money and drugs and alcohol. They are... They are really substitutes for God. G.K. Chesterton made a, a shocking statement, but I believe it's true. He said that when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, a place of sex for hire, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's really knocking for God. He thinks he's looking for sex, and he thinks that will satisfy him. What he doesn't know is that that or money, or fame, or power, or friendship. Nothing in this life, good or bad, is the ultimate satisfaction that only God can give. And when people have all these things, so many people who have ended up wealthy, have ended up unhappy, who had power, said it was all for nothing. It's to show us that nothing in this life can completely satisfy only God. 
That's true that Jesus, she says, I, I want this. I, I have a need. I'd like, I'd like never to thirst again, whatever that means. I'd like it. And it's true that Jesus can heal our problems. He can heal loneliness and despair and anger and depression and every psychological and physical illness. But you will never, you will never, I say this carefully, you will never become a Christian as long as you see Jesus as someone who just relieves your problems. You will never become a Christian if you see Jesus only as the one who will heal your marriage, cure your addiction. Jesus needs to be the solver, the savior of the human problem. And what is that? That's sin. And that's what he's gonna address in this lady's life. Jesus is more than just a 12-step program reduced into one step. He must be the savior of all. Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells how comprehensive this is. Listen. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, just that in itself, it means he will embrace every part of your life. There's not, well, you can help my marriage, but I don't want you to work on my job situation. I'm, I'm going that on my own. No, confess Jesus as Lord and shall believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Now, that's a particular kind of death, the death on the cross for sin, not just any death that he came back from. Thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession, confession of our sin and confession of our faith in him who bore our sin, confession is made unto salvation. Jesus isn't just a band-aid for boredom, an antidote for addiction, a pill for our problems, any area of life that we just want to sort of fix and then move on and leave Jesus alone again. He wants to be the comprehensive Lord of our lives. Is he? Is he your Lord? Verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman said unto her, Sir, I perceive thou art a a prophet. Here's the eighth tip. He brought God's truth and God's viewpoint to bear on her life. He brought God's truth and God's viewpoint to bear on her life. That's why we need to know the scriptures when we're trying to share our faith. So that as somebody brings up their life situation, a scripture may come to mind that corrects and shows what God thinks of that. Oh, I'm I'm just about as good as the next guy. Well, we could easily say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As simple as that. Bringing their false view of themselves and their hopes for life after death under the ray of the laser ray of God's truth. That's what Jesus does. And so she goes here to sidetrack number three. Sidetrack number three. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say, you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. 
But the hour comes and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. The hour comes. Historically, that would happen in about 40 years when there would be no temple to worship in because it would be knocked to the ground. In terms of God's plan of salvation, the hour would come in about three and a half years when this Lord Jesus would die as the sin bearer. And personally for her, the hour would come this very hour, the hour in which they now stood. And the hour of your salvation could be literally in this next hour, in this next minute. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. There'd be no need for temples or sanctuaries or tabernacles or cathedrals or synagogues or mosques or chapels or meeting halls. Those who want to worship God will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. Someone has said that anyone who is a temple of the Holy Spirit carries his temple wherever he goes. My wife and I were on a cruise a week or two ago and I went up to... uh, a certain meeting room, I, there was a meeting there and I never could understand what it was. It was, uh, it was advertised as the meeting uh, the friends of Dr. Bob and Bill W. And every crew who's been on, there's been that ad for that meeting. Every cruise. Uh, how famous can these guys be that they have friends all over every cruise? Well, I went there. Dr. Bob, anybody know who they are? Dr. Bob and Bill W.? They are the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it was a way of advertising AA without, you know, any uh, stigma attached to it. So I went there, and uh, another lady came who was in a little wedding chapel, and her husband was very sick, and so she wanted to come and pray for him there, and she said she was looking for an altar. And I said, well, there's no altar in this room, but you know, I don't think we need an altar. I think we could pray. I, I wouldn't mind praying for your husband. Would that be all right? And she let me pray. Her name was Susan, and his name was Amin. So I don't know what her faith was, uh, but I I just prayed. And uh, I wasn't able to say much more than in Jesus' name at the end. But I, I believe if that's all you're able to say, if you can just say the name Jesus, God can take it from there. He can take it from there. My friend Jimmy Davis worked with his uh, half-brother in evangelism for many years, and they were in a, a mission one night preaching the gospel and a man went by and he was he just heard one word come out of all the preaching he couldn't he couldn't segment the words and figure out anything else he just heard the word Jesus and that stopped him in his tracks he was planning to commit suicide he came into the mission hall heard the rest of the message was counseled got saved but one word arrested him Jesus even though it might seem random and forced I think it's still good you could just say, you know, you go to Walmart and they say, you got a really good deal. I haven't seen these on for $2 in a long time. Isn't Jesus good? What's Jesus got to do with that? Well, I'd be glad to explain that if you want to tell me. <laughs> just get his name out there. I believe there's power in his name. If you could do it smoothly, great too. Verse 24, he says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called the Christ. When he is come, he'll tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I 
that speak unto thee am he. I'm the Christ. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Jesus had not yet made that statement to his own disciples. This Samaritan woman is the first person to know, to hear Jesus identify himself as the Christ. It might seem obvious and, and simple, but Jesus used words to identify himself. I think as Christians, we need to use words to identify ourselves as Christians. Some people think if I just leave a good life, if I live as Christ's followers, people will see that because the Bible says men will see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. There's merit in that. But I think God wants both. He wants the good life and he wants the words that are expressive of that. To have one without the other is weak. In uh, Discipleship Explored, which is a continuation of Christianity Explored, some of you may be familiar with, they give the example of one man who was a very flaming evangelist and he, he spoke the word of Christ every chance he got. But he was also a chiseler and a cheat and most people in the office knew it and then he took home certain things that belonged in the office that weren't his to take. So he had the words and not the life. And then it gives the opposite example of someone who had the life but never used words. This person lived a godly life in his company, in his office, for I think 10 years, maybe even more. And he got promoted, was transferred, whatever, and they had a party for him. And they said, you know, we've been watching your life now for these 10 or whatever years, and we noticed there's something different about you. We've talked it over, and we've come to the conclusion, you're a Buddhist, he had never put words. He'd never attached Christ to the reason for his good life. Jesus uses words. And John is famous for playing out that I am statement. Here he basically says, I am he. He says that later on, and it makes soldiers fall to their knees just to say, I am he. He's basically saying, I am that I am. And John tells us that if you're hungry, Jesus is the bread of life. If you feel like you're in darkness and have no way to see any indicator where to go, he says, I'm the light. If you feel boxed in with no exit, no escape from your predicament, Jesus says, I am the door. If you need direction and support, he says, I'm the shepherd. If you feel dead in your soul, he says, I'm resurrection. I am life. If you are lost, he says, I am the way. If you've been lied to, he is the truth. If you are lifeless, he is life. And if you're barren, he is the true vine. He's the fruitful one. Verse 27, and upon this, the ESV says, just then. And I think that highlights that as these disciples who have gone to town come back at just that moment, it's a key moment. And God has opened up this window for Jesus and this woman and now the disciples come back. What will the effect be? Upon this came his disciples, and they marveled that he talked to a woman. They realized that was stepping out of the box. Yet no man said unto her, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? Verse 28, the woman then, again in the ESV it says, So the woman dropped her water pot. I think it was as if she's accepted this. He says that I am the Christ. She's ready to go, but here are the disciples. And 
will they have a question? Do I need to be interviewed any further? No? Well, then here I go. And she takes off for town. The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men. Now, why did she leave her water pot? My, a friend of mine had a sermon in which he gave the 39 reasons why she left her water pot. Well, I'm not going to go over all those reasons. It may have been absent-minded. It may have been, I won't need it anymore, right? I've got living water now. I won't need that ever again. She may be misunderstood. But can you imagine? She leaves her water pot. She goes back into her village. Here's this woman that apparently everybody knows has had multiple men in her life, five so-called husbands and now a sixth. And she comes in. She says, I've got news. I have met a man. And they say, we've heard this story six times before. But then she compounds it by saying, I've met a man who told me everything I ever did. Come meet him. They knew some things about this woman that were not pleasant. And now she says, I've met a man who can unfold my whole life. There are no secrets for this man. He can tell you everything about me. And yet she wants them to come and meet him, even at the risk that it might, it might be some pressure on her and some criticism of her. Come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. I want you to notice some things about her message. It was short. It was simple. It was Christ-focused. And it was imperfect. It was imperfect. Jesus had unveiled that he knew about her five husbands and the man she's now with, technically not her husband. He may have told her some more things than that, but I don't think he had time to tell her everything she ever did. I think she extrapolated. She sort of said, well, if he knows that, he probably knows that and that and that and that. He's a man who could tell me if he wanted to. I bet he could tell me everything I ever did. So her message was short. It was simple. It was Christ-focused. And it was imperfect. So if you're a young believer and you think, uh, I, I don't... I don't really want a situation where I have a chance to tell people about Christ because, you know, I'd botch it. I'd ruin it. And if somebody more experienced, a sister or brother who knows Jesus better, knows the Bible better, if they had it, they'd be able to bring it home and bring them to a point of decision for Christ. And I shouldn't tackle that. This woman, what did she do? Can you say something short? Can you say something simple? Can you put the focus on Christ? You can simply by saying his name, Jesus. And even if it's imperfect, God can overrule your imperfection. Why do I say that? Because in spite of this imperfect description of Jesus, basically almost the whole town empties, empties and goes to see Jesus. And then it says, some people, when they got there, they wouldn't put their faith in Christ until they heard from him directly. But it says a bunch of them believed simply on those few short words she said. Few short words. God can bless. It isn't the quantity of words. I remember when I was at University of Toronto, I was studying Italian, and we lived in a flat above Italian people. And my Jew, fellow Jewish students there were brilliant at my university. Uh, all of them had averages higher than my highest mark in high school. Averages higher than my highest mark. And we'd have debates 
And some days they'd beat me to the wall and some days I'd beat them to the wall. But even in those days when I sort of won the argument, as I walked away, I realized they were no, weren't necessarily any closer to the kingdom just because I'd won an argument. And I'd get home and talked to the lady that, uh, one of the ladies that uh, owned the house we lived in. And she had very broken English. I had very broken Italian. She was very bitter against the gospel because a sister of hers had committed suicide. And uh, they had us for supper one night and they, they said, uh, are you evangeliste? Yeah, I guess you meant evangelical. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm evangelical, yeah. No like evangeliste. And I would try to tell her the gospel in my crummy Italian, and she would try to respond in her broken English, and I realized that she had as much opportunity to be saved in that broken exchange of language as the kids I had debated an hour or two ago back at the university. Share your faith. Don't w- she did not get trained. There's all, all kinds of reason for her to go on and be trained further. Sure, of course. Learn more scripture and be more trained. It says, verse 30, then they went out of the city and came onto him. It makes it sound like whoever heard her went. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testify, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come onto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Some wanted to go further. They took it from Jesus himself and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, not the Savior of the Jews, not the Savior of the Samaritans, the Savior of the world. Some believe right away. Some had to hear further from Jesus. If you tell the gospel and you don't get it finished, you don't get it done, you don't, make it, you don't tie it off with a neat ribbon, they will hear further from Jesus. Those same kids in university were so brilliant. I said to a Christian friend of mine, how will we ever unlock all the years, the 18 years of training they've had as Orthodox Jews and, and get the gospel to them? Uh, it just Four years seems too, too little, too, too little time. And he said, you, you're looking at this the wrong way. For the 18 years that they've been trained in Judaism, for those 18 years, the Holy Spirit has been convicting their soul as well. So whatever you present Christ, they heard more from Christ himself, not just the woman. They will hear more from Christ, from his Holy Spirit, after you leave them. She just shared her story. She didn't say he was a ransom. She didn't say he was a redemption or a healer or a burden lifter. She just shared what she experienced of Christ. You can do that. If you became a Christian, you learned enough that day to save your soul. Just share that. If that was enough to save your soul, it's enough to share with somebody else that God can use to save theirs as well. As a close, I'll just tell you about a man named Mr. Genor. He has a wonderful testimony. I wish I could detail it for you. It's just incredible. But he made a pledge to God for 40 years after he got saved that he would talk to 10 people a day about the Lord, just briefly. He'd go down to a busy street in Australia, Melbourne, I think it was, or Sydney, and he'd step out onto St. George Street and he would, he would just say, uh, hey there, sailor, are you, uh, are you sure where you'd be tonight if, if you died? Is Jesus your savior? 
and he'd give them a tract. Or he'd say, you know, can I have 30 seconds of your time? That's all he wanted, 30 seconds. You know, there's two roads in life. One leads to heaven and to happiness. One leads to hell and everlasting punishment. Makes all the difference which road you're on, don't you think? Ta-ta for now, give him a tract and walk on. He did that, some days he'd miss and he would just make it up the next day, do more for the days that he missed. Did that for 40 years, never heard, never heard about any results from what he did. And one pastor in London, somebody got up in his church and shared how they'd got saved through that man. Went over to the Caribbean, met a bunch of missionaries, they'd been saved through the same man. Went up to Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a chaplain there who was the head over a thousand chaplains, Christian chaplains, training them. He had been led to Christ by that same man. And when he added it up, there were thousands upon thousands who had come to Christ because of that little man saying that. And so the pastor eventually got to Sydney, went to that corner where the man used to preach, and he wasn't there, but a young man was up on a soapbox giving up the gospel. And he said, is that little old man still alive? And he said, yeah, he is, but he's too weak to do anything anymore. So he went around to visit him, introduced himself, and he was so feeble, his hands were shaking, he was spilling the tea that he served. And they said, I just want you to know we have heard, as we've traveled around the world, about hundreds and thousands of people coming to Christ because they met you, and you said, can I have 30 seconds of your time? And you gave them a tract. And the old man began to weep. He said, until this moment, I did not know of a single soul who had gotten saved. Not a single soul. And it was about two weeks later, the old man passed away. But he'd done that for 40 years, faithfully, every day. Just a little sound bite, and God can use it. Here's my testimony in 45 seconds or so. When I was a young kid, I was a people pleaser. I wanted to get every badge, every ribbon, every trophy, every award you can imagine. I wanted people to be impressed by me, and so I performed as best I could at scouts, at school, wherever, to get recognition. So I thought if I wanted God to like me, I had to do the same thing. Perform so I could make his grade. On May 5th, 1958, in Massey Hall, downtown Toronto, across the street from where I was born, I was born again. When I found out that Jesus loved me the moment I was born, even before I was born, and I didn't need to do anything to please him because Jesus had already done everything to please him in dying for me. Now notice there's no gangster in that story. There's no uh, Harley Davidson motorcycles or drug addiction or nothing's very spectacular, right? But you were listening, right? You were listening because it was my story. Simple kid, 1958, he wanted some awards. You were listening. Your story is as interesting. And you say, well, but I've been in a Christian home all my life. It's not that exciting. Hey, it's very exciting. When an Al Capone or some gangster gets saved, it's almost likely because they know full well they're sinners. They've done so much wrong, they know they're sinners. There's at least that starting point in their heart. But in that Christian home, you could have felt very safe, very content, and you were in maybe more danger of never seeing Christ as your need and never fearing for hell. So tell your story. Just ask for 30 seconds of time. That's what people are used to. That's how long a commercial lasts. 30 seconds. And if you don't finish, 
Jesus will finish it later on. Now, if you want to open for questions, we can do that, but I'm going to close in prayer. Before I do, I just want to say that if you're, if you're not a Christian, before I pray in just a minute here, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let, let the room be silent for about a minute, and I'd like you to pray. While you are praying, everyone here who is a believer will be praying for you, that you will cross the line, as this woman did, from death onto life. Just tell God that you recognize that you're a sinner, that that sin will condemn you to eternal punishment, but that you believe that the man in this story, Jesus, who said, I am the Christ, on a cross three and a half years later, proved that by dying in your place, took the punishment for your sin so you'll never be punished. In your own heart, in your own words, express that to God. And if you do that, Please be like the woman. Tell somebody. Tell someone who's a Christian who can help come alongside you and help you to grow as a believer and show you how to get acquainted with the Bible and how to be associated with Christians. So I'll pray in just a minute, but let's all pray for the next minute silently. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who presented himself to this woman. He took the initiative. She never would have approached him. She wouldn't have dared to. And we thank you that that's what Christ has done for each one of us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. He initiated. He died in our place. I pray if there's any unbeliever in this room that they might see Jesus as the one who is as ready to save them as he saved that woman so simply and so gloriously. And we pray if that has happened, or if it does happen today, that they might share it as soon as they can so that their friends might know about it and that other Christians might help them. Thank you again for the Lord Jesus. He is all in all. He is the blessed one. Thank you that Jesus is mine. In his precious name, amen.